Hey, it's Mark. You know those melodic snippets that we often find ourselves humming while puttering around the house or taking a walk? Take the Home Depot theme song, for instance, which has been co-opted by scores of social media influencers for home renovation project videos, even if they feature a lowest paint bucket. In a nutshell, sonic branding is sound which advertisers employ as a critical touchpoint for their brand. It's an area of marketing that not a lot of people think about. Yet there's a certain irony there because the sound of an ad is often what hits us first and perhaps sticks the most. Think Intel's famous Intel Inside Bomb or the chime from NBC. In our house, the four-note Monday night football theme stirs some deep male longing for fall. Indeed, the best instances of sonic branding convey an emotional tonality of the brand through music. This week on the podcast, digital editor Jack O'Brien interviews Lauren McGuire, president of Made Music Studio, about what goes into creating these three-second sound bites for healthcare brands, how the new audio forward platforms have changed the game, and where she sees room for improvement in using sound for brand building. Lesha's taking a well-deserved week off. Jack, what's new on the healthcare social media front this week? This week, Mark, we'll be discussing a major movie studio bringing back mask mandates for in-office workers. A Connecticut doctor alleges he was abducted after a night out at a Brooklyn nightclub and his captor made him spend $6,000 on a shopping spree. And we have a review of Netflix's Painkiller series. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Hello and welcome to the MMM Podcast. My name is Jack O'Brien. I'm the digital editor at MMM. I'm pleased to be joined today by Lauren McGuire, president of Made Music Studio. Lauren, how are you doing today? Good. Thank you, Jack. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you being on the show. You're kind of different, I would say, maybe from some of the other podcast guests that we've had in terms of, you know, agency head or working for a pharma company. You have a different role in the, you know, kind of marketing ecosystem. And I kind of wanted to start the interview there. If you give us a quick background on your organization, what you do, and then we can get some more specific questions from there. Yeah, absolutely. It's actually going back to my roots to be here with you, Jack, because I actually came from healthcare marketing. So I started in direct to professional advertising and then moved to the consumer side and did some B2B pharmaceutical advertising. And at some point in that journey, I was in healthcare and pharma for about 13 years. And then I made a hard right-hand turn to Made Music Studio, which is a global sonic branding studio. Uh, That was about 12 years ago. And um, at the time, Made Music was really focused on entertainment. So we like to say that we're born from entertainment. When you hear the Super Bowl on NBC, that's our work. The NBA and ESPN, that's our work. Um, anything from Anthony Bourdain or ESPN's 30 for 30. But about 12 years ago, we started working in this sonic branding space. And I came with this healthcare background. So bringing those two things together is, is one of the things that I really love. I can talk your ear off about your involvement with you know some of these sports franchises that obviously I have a near and dear uh, connection to, but we're going to focus on the healthcare marketing aspect. And for those in our audience who may be unaware, when you talk about sonic branding or sonic identity, what is that exactly? Can you give us a little high-level overview? Absolutely. So the way that we generally talk about it, and this is what helps get your brain thinking about those uh, sonic branding in all of its forms. So think about the short form Intel Inside. Um, bong that we're all so familiar with, or the chimes from NBC, that's sonic branding. 
Um, when you think about the underscore for any Home Depot commercial in combination with that very specific voiceover, that's Sonic Branding. When you think about um, calling into a company's call center, that's usually bad Sonic Branding and something that people really haven't thought enough about. But pretty much anywhere that sound and music plays a role in a critical touch point for your brand, we consider Sonic Branding. Most companies, including healthcare companies, come to us for that short form Sonic logo. But there's more to go that goes into it than just that little three second sound. And can you tell us about what goes into that? Because I know I was talking with uh, my producer offline about this. You know, it's not just, oh, this we think this would sound good in the ad. Let's put it in there. There's a science and strategy that goes into it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is what I think that the marriage of sort of my healthcare background and that biology background, what was really what drove me to sonic branding, to be honest, because our brain acts really differently with sound than it does with any other input. First of all, it's your fastest sense. So when you think about an initial brand impression, any marketing that you do, the sound is going to hit us first, yet we generally consider it last. Um, when we think about the um, the sound of a brand overall, that's generally where we start. For example, for the Alzheimer's Association, they have to be so many things. They have to be a patient advocate. They have to be um, going to Capitol Hill and lobbying for the things that matter. They have to be working with scientific organizations and saying, this is why we deserve your dollars. That's so many things that a brand needs to be. So with most companies, we start with a long form theme. You can consider it sort of your visual identity. Your visual identity isn't just your, your logo. There's usually colors. There's usually fonts. There's usually a full palette from which to go. That's how we use themes. And that's really writing the full journey of a brand in a way that um, all stakeholders can hear themselves at some portion of that journey, hear themselves in that journey. And that's generally the first piece that we create. From there, we can get to a sonic logo. We can get to a library of music. We can get to um, underscores and cutdowns and CEO walk-ons that make it feel like whether you're an employee, a stakeholder, or a customer, you start to have the emotional tonality of this brand through music. And I'm curious, you talk about, obviously, the company starting with an entertainment focus and then being able to pivot into healthcare. What are, say, the differences between if you were working on a consumer brand or an entertainment brand as opposed to a healthcare brand in terms of you know, how they want to communicate their message? You gave the example of the Alzheimer's Association, but are there yeah. general you know, concepts that go into healthcare? There are. And I think, you know, every, uh, every healthcare client has been different, just like every brand is different. Almost every healthcare client is different, but there are a little bit of themes that we see. And for a lot of our healthcare clients. So for example, some of them have a really wide array of products that they want to be thinking about. And an example of this is Abbott, for example, who came to us and said, like, we'd really like a Sonic logo because we have so many products out there. And nobody knows that they're from Abbott. When you think about their diabetes technology to Ensure or Pediasure, all of these different ways that they show up, but those products are very different. So for that brand, it was like, we're going to need a sonic identity, but it's going to need to be a little bit expressive. We're going to have one version that's heavy into science. It feels very sciencey, and one that's into caring and really underlines the care that we bring to these products because we've got such a range of products. Generally, that those sort of nuances it what is what goes into healthcare. Um, when you think about most healthcare companies want to be perceived as both technologically forward 
and very human forward and caring forward. And that's tricky to achieve in sound and music. So either getting to one sound that says both or more frequently getting to versions and variations where it's familiar, the casual listener may not even know that they're different, but they do have a a slightly different tonality and emotional takeaway to them. I'm glad you brought up that point about that balancing act because I talk to, you know, marketing and, and healthcare leaders all the time. And they talk about the difficulty being like, you know, we have all the scientific research that goes into what we do, but we also want to seem human, not robotic to the people that we're obviously appealing to on that level. When you look at the landscape out there as it relates to sound, what do you think is maybe the most misunderstood aspect as it relates to marketing? Is there people that just don't get it or don't get the full scope of what you're talking about when it comes to that? You know, I've, we've been doing this for 12 years now. And in the beginning, you had to explain so much about sonic branding. I spent so much time just talking about what it is and giving examples. And it's actually moved really far. I think as our mediums have gotten um, more uh, differentiated. So if the, we're thinking about digital videos, we're thinking about radio, we're thinking about all of these different touch points, and some of them are really audio forward. Sonic branding, that understanding has uh, has become a lot a lot more prevalent. What is interesting is talking about how it's not that simple. So I know that like if you're just like, give me the two seconds at the end of an ad, we get that a lot. Um, in large organizations of which most health healthcare companies are, it is it can be a really long process to try and get two seconds of sound approved as the brand sound. So really thinking more holistically about this in terms of let's get to a long form piece, we will actually get to outcomes faster. If you think about your brand through sound and music in long form, and then get to that sonic logo. And I think that that's the other thing that people don't really understand is how going through the exercise of thinking about your brand through sound and music can um, really be like a team building activity or even something that changes how you think about your brand or gets you to more pointed language about your brand. And this happens to us over and over because you're used to sitting in your room with a marketing team and talking about um, language and words and attributes and even visuals. But when you think about sound and music, it's another part of your brain that's doing the thinking. So having a, a brand and marketing conversation through sound really brings up a lot of different like feelings. We, people have more nuanced conversations about the brand that can actually move forward a lot of aspects of branding just from thinking through this lens. And the work that gets done to get to a sonic logo doesn't just create that sonic logo, it affects underscores. You now have direction for the sound of a brand. You now have direction for the voice of your brand. It can really cut down on some of these things that a lot of brands find challenging. Because without a framework or guidelines, music and sound can be very, very subjective. I'm really curious too, because you talk about it launching about a, you know over a decade ago, and obviously the the media consumption landscape was so different back then. I mean, it, streaming was technically a thing, but Netflix certainly wasn't what it is now. Same thing with Spotify, you name it. In addition to all the other things that have proliferated, have proliferated the Disney Pluses of the world, TikTok certainly wasn't a thing. How has that changed in terms of your business operations and also the clients that you're catering to in terms of their expectations? Yeah, I would say it's all about scope and scale. So when we started in this business, people are like broadcast advertising, broadcast advertising, broadcast advertising. And I really only heard from clients who had the budgets to be doing broadcast advertising. Now, uh, B2B companies, companies who have a lot of employees and are thinking about how they can be messaging to them better or building a better sense of, of company, 
and brand to employees, really galvanizing a group of people. They're thinking about Sonic branding. Um, streaming audio and TikTok have been revolutionary for us, like just to, to cut to it, because when you think about how quickly, for example, you see a TikTok and a brand has the minute to make an impression and their business with influencers, there's only so much that you can control as a brand. And if you can control that music and get those attribution and recall points through music, um, you are making really big strides on that platform. If you think about, I mentioned Home Depot earlier. When I go on TikTok, I happen to get a lot of home improvement TikToks. Most influencers will pick up the Home Depot theme and put it in the background of them doing their home renovations, even when they're using a Lowe's paint bucket. That's all <laughs> brand impression. You know what I mean? That Home Depot is not paying for, but they invested through their sonic identity. These uh, audio forward platforms have really changed the game. Um, so that's been really critical. And then streaming audio and podcasts are really significant. You have a lot of these companies who are like, we have made our money through podcast advertising. So um, even when you're doing host reads, what are the sonic cues that can go fit in really organically with those host reads that help get you recognized and connect your product from one podcast to another podcast in a way that consumers will start to hear? It's so funny to hear you talk about the Home Depot thing because I see that, to your point, and videos that are highlighting home improvement projects, but even just ones where it's like, say, a dad getting his family to the airport hours beforehand, and you hear that little dun-dun-dun-dun, and you immediately think, like, wow, that has nothing to do with Home Depot, but somehow they have slid themselves into a video that has thousands, if not millions of views, and that still has that ripple effect. Even if I'm not immediately going to be a consumer, it's something that I'm thinking about. Yeah, it's it's sneaky branding. And this work, works in healthcare. I mean, for, there was times that I've heard multiple times the Ozempic song being sung yeah. on the street by strangers. <laughs> and it, when you get that kind of stickiness, and that's the thing that's interesting about music, it has hooks, it has these things that really get stuck in your head in a different way. But when else are you going to get a, a product like that being talked about by strangers in the street or referenced. And it's it's music and sound that really does that. And it's interesting to hear you bring that up too, because I remember when I first heard that ad, I was like, oh, well, I, bet, I you know I've heard that song a million times, the original version, but I've never, once they put Ozempic to it, I was like, oh, that was just, somebody just came up with that and it was so brilliant, but then it sticks in your head. I, I can barely go back to the, oh, 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 it's magic. Cause I'm immediately thinking like, oh, 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 Ozempic. Just because yeah. of the way that I've heard it so frequently. Yeah, shout out to Cult Health, who I think was the agency behind that. But that that thing was, I, I have people reference that to me all the time. <laughs> and I'm sure it doesn't get old. <laughs> no, no. It, it, you know, it, it helps build business. But I think these are the things that really, when you're, think, when you're trying to think differently about breakthrough, sound can really play a role in that. I have to ask you, we've talked a lot about, obviously, the successes as it relates to being able to, you know, use sound to your advantage in terms of brand building and awareness with consumers. Is there anywhere where you see room for improvement or maybe where we've, we've hit the tip of the iceberg? We haven't really explored that yet. So the, the number one way that we see companies um, not be successful in sonic branding is that it, it's hard to get started and proliferate. You have to be really, really dedicated to it. So I see a lot of brands do kind of false starts and stops 
where they get something, they get it to air once, maybe twice, or I see it in a couple digital ads, and then it never becomes a reality. I can tell you that that is a number one focus for us if people are going to do this. It has to get to air, and then you have to continue to use it. It takes some time for something to... Something like sound and music has an impact after 12 to 18 months. So I think that that's, that is something I see very frequently and something that we're really trying to help people overcome as they think about the, the value of sonic branding. Um, and I would say the other thing that we have just hit the tip of the iceberg, in my opinion, is, is streaming audio. I hear um, a lot of not great radio ads and streaming audio ads. I know that when I was in advertising, radio and audio was the last thing to happen. And you try to convert a television commercial into an audio commercial. I feel like it's only been over the last two years or so that I hear, I mean, it's a huge platform. So many people are listening, whether it's terrestrial or streaming audio. Creating audio ads designed for audio, I think is going to continue to become um, more and more prevalent in our industry. And I'm starting to hear it. I hear really great ads for P&G, for example, and they're a lead in you know research and understanding. So if they're thinking about their audio ads through the lens of audio only, I think everybody should be considering that differently. Awesome. Well, Lauren, I really appreciate you being on here to share these best practices and obviously where the industry is succeeding and maybe has room for improvement. I want to end the interview with kind of an out-of-the-box question, but it's just something that came to mind when we confirmed this interview. What's your favorite sound or do you have a preferred sound? Oh, okay. So um, this I've, I've been, maybe it's just my own experience. Um, we have this thing called the sound. When we started doing research, we wanted to test uh, sound subconsciously because sound usually like, I, I don't want anyone to see an ad and say like, that was a great sonic logo. We want them to say, <laughs> I love that brand, or I really want to figure out what that product is. So we test subconsciously. And when we started to do this, we tested natural sounds. The the top tested sound that we've never been able to beat, our work on HBO is close, but we've never been able to beat it is the sound of, it's a very, it's a specific baby laughter. Um, and we've never been able to top it. And I got to tell you that like my, my daughter's, when she, she laughs a lot. And as soon as she was born and I heard like her distinct laugh, I was like, this is it for me. Like, this is probably the, <laughs> this is the sound that is going to get me every time. So I would say that's like without a doubt, my favorite sound. And there's some science behind that too. That's so interesting, especially that, like you said, there is that science backing it up. So yeah, the, the <laughs> and, least favorite sound is a pain scream, which also makes sense. Okay. I was human gonna, perspective. I would figure it would either be that or nails on a chalkboard. So. That's number two. <laughs> okay. So yep. they're all at the bottom of the list there. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Lauren, again, really appreciate your insights and being on the show. And certainly as I watch TV or listen to anything going forward, I'm going to be revisiting this conversation. So really appreciate you being on. Awesome. Thank you, Jack. Thanks for having me. Social media, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, social media update. And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome Jack O'Brien back to tell us what's trending on healthcare social media. Hey, Jack. Hey, Mark. So as I'm sure many in our audience have recognized, there has been a slight uptick in COVID-19 cases around the country. While it's no longer the national emergency that disrupted life in a litany of ways for about three years, it's very much still a thing. A slight summer wave, thanks largely to the ARIS subvariant, has led to an uptick in cases nationwide, particularly in metropolitan areas like New York City and Los Angeles. 
To that end, the film studio Lionsgate has brought back a mask mandate for nearly half of the company's employees at its flagship office in Santa Monica. Deadline reported that a Lionsgate executive announced the return of the masks in an internal email this week. Quote, employees must wear a medical grade face covering, surgical mask, KN95 or N95, when indoors except when alone in an office with the door closed, actively eating, actively drinking at their desk or workstation, or if they are the only individual present in a large open workspace, the executive wrote in an email. The outlet also reported that all Lionsgate employees are required to perform a daily self-screening prior to coming to the office and must notify company leadership and stay home if exhibiting any symptoms or have traveled internationally in the past 10 days. Lionsgate is also conducting contact tracing and providing at-home COVID test kits upon request. So, Mark, this kind of feels like a one step forward, two steps back situation. Obviously, a good portion of the population is vaccinated. The emergency phase of the COVID pandemic is over, but, you know, we're seeing an uptick in cases. I'm unfortunately recording this remotely and not in the studio with you because of a close contact that I had with a COVID case. So it seems like one of those things where it's not as bad as it was two years ago. It wasn't as dire, but we're still living in this kind of, you know, to pardon the cliche, new normal. Yeah, right. I, I know you're uh, hunkering down there for good reason um, and uh, hope Alexandra is feeling better. But, uh, you know, none of us are happy to hear uh, that uh, this new variant is uh, you know, triggering these mask mandates again. This uh, Harris variant, as you mentioned, is a, a sort of a relative uh, of Omicron. And uh, while it's circulating, it sounds like the CDC is... Um, sort of recommending that people in high-risk groups wear the masks, or caregivers, and uh, specifically N95s, uh, which are now readily available, which they weren't, obviously, earlier on in the early days of the pandemic. And then we see some corporations uh, like this one, which are pretty aggressive uh, in the public safety area uh, doing that as well. You know, just a reminder, like you say, that uh, this uh, COVID virus is endemic now. Um, it's probably what they, you know, public health health experts, excuse me, have said. It's just going to be like kind of like every time this, this time of year, we're probably going to see an uptick um, as people come back from their summer vacations, you know, after they've gathered. And uh, it's it's um, going to become just as common as the flu and, and other virus, viruses. So. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talking about the timing of it. Obviously, we've heard a lot of public health experts pointing to the fall where there's going to be a potential rise in RSV cases, the flu, COVID, that kind of triple-demic that they've warned about. But then there's also the dynamic where companies and especially large corporations are trying to get their workers to go back into the office and trying to get that return to the office protocol back in place. Don't necessarily know that this helps the cause by any stretch, but as you noted, it's also less than we've seen in past years. I think the CDC had said that this spike was the smallest that we've seen since the pandemic began. Mm. Back in 2020, we've obviously seen these summer spikes with Delta and the like, but you know, it'll be interesting to see how much this really affects everything. And obviously, we have the rollout, the expected rollout, I should say, of some of these updated COVID-19 booster shots in the fall that seemingly from the data are effective against the subvariant. Again, it remains to be seen whether or not how quickly those will get rolled out and how many people are actually going to take those booster shots. I know the lagging uptick there, uptake there has been a concern for public health officials. Yeah, and we saw some of the healthcare stocks like Novavax spike because of their coverage of uh, this variant, but uh, that's another story. All right, let's go to the next item. And this is a 
unusual story and not one I think we would necessarily keep in the podcast, but it's a slower time in the summer and there is a healthcare angle and it's also under dispute. So I, I ask our listeners to keep that in mind. Michael Bautista, a 32-year-old doctor from Norwalk, Connecticut, claimed that he was kidnapped outside of a troubled Brooklyn nightclub and forced to spend more than $6,000 by his captor. On July 22nd, Bautista attended a show at Brooklyn Mirage, a concert venue that has been linked to two deadly disappearances in recent months, with two 27-year-old New York men recently discovered floating in nearby Newtown Creek. Bautista alleges that he was subsequently taken hostage by a Bronx man going by the name of Tony G's, who was possibly armed and threatened to shoot him if he, quote, tried anything funny, according to the New York Post. The doctor claimed that Tony G's, also known as Anthony Benjamin, forced him to spend thousands of dollars that night on pizza, smoothies, a trip to the strip club, a trip to Foot Locker, and a stop at the barber shop. It was only after Bautista convinced Benjamin and a friend to drive him back to Norwalk Hospital, claiming that he was on call that weekend, that the ordeal ended. Local police arrested Benjamin and the other man while they were still in the facility parking lot, the incident report said. But despite a request from the bail commissioner to have Benjamin's bail set at $250,000, the judge allowed him to be released without bail and ordered him not to have contact with the victim. Now, it's important to note that a prosecutor said police do not have, quote, any other independent corroboration to confirm what Bautista claimed, as court records show. The Norwalk Hour, a local newspaper up there, pointed out that Norwalk police are working with the NYPD to investigate the doctor's allegations, and New Vance Health, the healthcare system that owns Norwalk Hospital, declined to comment to the hour, knowing that the police are still investigating the incident. Again, not something that I think we would typically talk about on the show, but there is a healthcare angle. And unfortunately, there's been a number of you know disturbing instances over at Brooklyn Mirage. Uh, if anything, I would hope that our listeners keep that in mind when they decide to go out for a night on the town, that there are some dangerous spots and there are people that are maybe not always acting in your best interest when you interact with them. Yeah. It reads like a script from the movie Goodfellas or something, doesn't it? It's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Just an odd story. You know, I guess it's kind of a local one that was written up um, in this uh, Connecticut uh, news site. But uh, yeah, as you say, it just happens to have a medical angle um, and a good reminder. If you see something, say something. Absolutely. Final story here. One of the biggest shows on Netflix, Painkiller. Two years after Hulu released Dope Sick to have examined the devastating effects of the ongoing opioid epidemic in America, Netflix has released a six-part miniseries focusing on Purdue Pharma's role in the multi-decade epidemic. It stars Matthew Broderick as Richard Sackler, the company's former president and chairman. It follows several plot lines, including the inception of OxyContin, Purdue Pharma's aggressive marketing of the opioid to consumers and healthcare professionals in the late 1990s, the impact of addiction on families across the country, efforts by law enforcement to stem the tide of the epidemic, and the drug makers' subsequent efforts to avoid publicly taking responsibility for fueling the crisis. The series is based on the book Painkiller by Barry Mayer, as well as the New Yorker article The Family That Built the Empire of Pain by Patrick Radin Keefe. Since its premiere, Painkillers received mostly middling reviews from critics and audiences, According to Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic, Variety called it a, quote, melodramatic and convoluted assessment of the opioid crisis, while other outlets have referred to Dope Sick as the better series. Still, it has been one of Netflix's top shows for August and prompted a renewed focus on the causes of the opioid crisis and its damaging effects on families across the country. Notably, at the start of each episode, 
A parent who has lost their child to the opioid epidemic reads a disclaimer that while some elements have been fictionalized, their pain is real. Quote, this program is based on real events. However, certain characters, names, incidents, locations, and dialogue have been fictionalized for dramatic purposes, the parents read. The general public, which often has a love-hate relationship with pharma, has remained intrigued in recent years by stories focusing on industry malfeasance and greed. In a scene early on in the series, a fictionalized federal investigator played by Uzo Aduba says that, quote, big money in healthcare is in sales, marketing, and lies. Public interest in healthcare's bad actors remains high, whether it applies to shows centering on Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers, the rise and fall of Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes, or documenting the legal tribulations of pharma bro Martin Shkreli. While some of the content in these shows and movies can be sensationalized and take artistic liberties, it ultimately draws public attention to the crisis going on three decades in America that at times can feel hopeless. And Mark, I want to throw it to you. Obviously, you've been covering the industry for years and years, and you've seen you know, the various waves and manifestations of the opioid epidemic. It is interesting to see that we have yet another series or another piece of media out there kind of diving into specifically Purdue's role, but obviously how the opioid epidemic has changed the way that we view healthcare in America. Yeah. And, uh, you know, looking at um, some of the social media chatter about the series, um, like you said, some people say Dope Sick is the better one, uh, but um, wouldn't be surprised to see Uzo Aduba, uh, you know, nominated and possibly winning an Emmy for her performance. Apparently it was uh, pretty, she did a pretty phenomenal job. She was the strong, I will say she was the strongest part of it. I think that there were plenty of things that lacked, but she was by far the the heart and soul of the show. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, in terms of the, the larger point, you know, in terms of reigniting um, the, the controversy, including, um, A, the, the misbranding of, of OxyContin and, you know, what, what, what can be said that hasn't been said already about, you know, the, uh, the fact that it's uh, obviously a cautionary tale about exaggerating um, the efficacy of any, you know, drug-related product. Um, overstating its efficacy without mentioning the side effect information. In this case, obviously, the highly addictive uh, nature of this product. Uh, had a relative recently that had um, a surgery, just like a routine general surgery. And as the family member was giving updates, it was um, all about, you know, she doesn't have to go on the oxy or she, you know, she's coming off the oxy. You know, it was like, it's, it's in everybody's consciousness now, you know, mm-hmm. after whether it's been dope sick or series, you know, like this new series like this one or, or the, you know, the very public, um, uh, you know, trials and tribulations of the Sackler family. Um, and, uh, and, and the other, you know, cautionary aspect of it, um, is, is just the, the tragedy. Like you point out that the, uh, you know, the, the uh, opioid tragedy, um, is a very sad, you know, chapter in our nation's history that, that continues. Um, and, uh, it's, a uh, it can at times feel hopeless. Um, but hopefully the money coming uh, from the settlement, uh, will go to the communities that need it the most and will come out of this. Yeah. I hope that, you know, for, I, I know our audience is obviously all too familiar with, the opioid crisis and the effects that it's had on public health and everything. But I think for the casual viewer, maybe the layman out there that's not as familiar with the industry, obviously, as we are and members of our audience, I hope that it is eye-opening in that way because it really does delve into the aspects of addiction that maybe are still stigmatized or not fully understood. And the money aspect that you talk about too, they really go into that towards the end where the pharma, I mean, Purdue Pharma really looks at settling and saying, you know, we can basically pay off the problem. But there is a very dramatic scene 
involving a ghost of the Sackler family confronting Richard Sackler, talking about it's not about money at the end of the day. It's about legacy and perception and how that settling with states or the federal government basically you know, compromises their legacy in that light. So it's interesting. It's obviously not a perfect series. Again, Dopesick got so many better reviews. And as somebody that sat there over the course of one day and watched six episodes, didn't come away entirely impressed, but I would still recommend it for our audience. And obviously a lot of people are watching it too. It's still one of Netflix's biggest shows this month. And that's stacked up against the likes of, you know, quarterback and all these other football programs they have there. So good on them for shining a light and, you know, we'll see, we'll see what else comes down the pike. Right. And I love your point about, you know, how, you know, um, Hollywood sees high entertainment value in these healthcare related stories like the Sacklers, Elizabeth Holmes of, of Theranos, um, perhaps, you know, Farmer Bros next up, you know, for his own uh, original content series on, on your favorite streaming channel. Um, but uh, it, it brings it back to the public consciousness to the extent that people in our industry are not familiar with it. It's, it's another way to get familiar with this. And I'm, I'm just as surprised as anybody that the family, you know, allowed, seemed to allow its, um, you know, legacy to be tarnished in this way, you know, despite the, the very, you know, public chance they had to kind of, you know, apologize and redeem themselves. And yet they, they chose not to do that a couple of years ago. And so, um, anyway, it's, it's a, a very, um, uh, unfortunate chapter in, in the, in the history of this industry. Um, but, uh, for people who, you know, want a, a good primer on it, a primer on it, this is probably a good way to do, do so. So thanks for bringing that up, Jack. Yeah. And if you're stuck at home quarantining like I am, you can burn off six hours right there watching it. So let that be my recommendation to the listeners. There you go. Entertainment Reco from Jack. Exactly. That's it for this week. The MMM podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sone. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing.